first couple, let's go. First couple promenade around the outside, around the outside all day long. Head couples chain, chain the boys right down the center, and then you chain them back again. Now to your right, head couples chain to the right, to the right, to the right hand couple, and then you chain them back once more. Now to your left, head couples chain to the left, your left hand couple, and then you chain the gal that you adore. Square your sets. Now go see. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life love and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowsky. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilm podcast. And joining me today as always, he is the man who played the role of judge in the TV series Reba. <laughs> Stephen Tobolowsky. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, man. That, that hurts. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for you to go to that... You know, after looking for what role am I going to pick for Stephen, and you go to judge, you know what you didn't mention, David, is that that was not the first time I have played judge. I, because I also played judge on uh, an, an unpicked up pilot that I did almost right at the same time as Reba. And uh, when I was, uh, hey, we were talking about this with, with episode eight, when you're offered a part. Uh, and, and it tells you kind of what they think of you. And I was offered the part of judge. And I had a delightful time on Reba. That was a lot of fun. The other judge I played was on a, a filmed show, a one-hour film show. And it was doing the torrential downpours that we get in Los Angeles that apparently <laughs> make people across the country very upset when we get upset in Los Angeles about our rain. But it really gets torrential here, and we were shooting in the rainstorm, and there was rain pouring down on the judge's bench uh, while I was doing it. So they stuck a bucket between my legs, and the, the whole goal of my performance as judge, which I think was a powerful performance, was to not get rainwater splashing on my nose – but to get it to where it would just pass directly past my nose and right into the bucket. That was the game I played all day. Well, that sounds very fascinating, Steve. <laughs> also, you played Judge, according to your IMDb page, in Drew's, uh, the Drew Carey Show, uh, Drew's Dance Party Special in 1998, oh. as well as Judge Number 1 in Debating Robert Lee, the 2004 film directed by Dan Polier. Yeah, that was yeah. I I didn't know they were calling that judge, uh, but but I'm glad I'm glad that you found those. Other, now the Drew Carey thing was absolutely hysterical, because that's the show I think that was nominated for an Emmy Award, where the guys had to be naked and did the full Monty dance, and uh, I played the kind of head of the Chamber of Commerce or whatever viewing whether their act was obscene or not, and then I demand that they do the act in front of us. Uh, that was so hysterical, but one of the big concerns the producers and the director had for the show was that someone would get pictures and, po heaven forbid, this was, I guess, before Twitter, and post them on the Internet. So when we performed that scene where the guys did the dance where they were in there all together... We had to do it in a 
completely sealed off part of the stage, and we were trying to confiscate cell phones from everybody so no one could send pictures to uh, kind of bust the uh, production. I see. So you were you danced naked? Are you saying? Uh, no, not 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 on the show. I didn't dance okay. naked in my life. Yeah, I've just in your naked. daily activities. Understood. Yeah, understood. That, that, right. that's that's just private. Well, in any case, I'm glad we got to. As with every week, we get to revisit a, a small part of your voluminous <laughs> filmography. Yes. But you know, Stephen, today is January first, New Year's Day. One of my favorite parts about New Year's Day when I was growing up was that we'd never have any school on New Year's Day, which was pretty pretty sweet. We didn't have to go into school. It was a nice uh, sort of acknowledgement of the idea that perhaps we'd been out partying the whole night before. Yeah, now you're, you're a kind of a young whippersnapper, aren't you? Or you're, uh, it you're... depends on what you mean by young. I'm in my 20s. Yeah, it depends what you mean by whippersnapper. Exactly. I, you know, when I was growing up, yeah, the day we had to go back to school was the 2nd, the 2nd of January. So, you know, January 1st was really kind of bittersweet because we knew the Christmas, New Year's holiday had come to an end and we were headed back to school. But the truth of the matter is, it, and <clears throat> let me throw this back to you for feedback too, is that I really felt that school was some of the more, much more intense than the time off. I mean, school was very entertaining and very intense, as I recall. Yeah, I, I would say so, yeah. Certainly. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this week's podcast, and uh, I, I recognize that when you're young, one of the biggest events of your life is school. And at school, there's hardly anything more noteworthy than new kids. And when I was in the second grade, we, we merged the classes, and the kids from the other first grade class were now suddenly part of my world. And Mrs. Cooper was our teacher, and she had a system to keep everything in order. We kids were going to be organized alphabetically and by height. And, and I was always tall for my age, meaning that the practical application of the Cooper system was that I was always surrounded by tall girls whose names began with letters at the end of the alphabet. So Reynolds, Rice, Richard, Sims, Simmons. I guess I probably should have been seatmates with Sylvia Sims or Phyllis Simmons, but they were too short because, of course, part two of the Cooper system was the height variable, which coupled me with Claire Richards. Being almost as tall as I, Claire was always seated right in front of me, and she was always standing ahead of me in line, and, and I would like to say that I was enchanted by her smile, which was always sunny, or thrilled by her laugh and her conversation, except she didn't really talk to me. She was from the other class, and I was a boy. But because of our relative positions in life, I became fixated with the back of her head. She had honey brown hair that was about shoulder length, and when she would walk down the hallway, it would sway in front of me, and I started feeling like our cat, Tom, eyeing a piece of string. I just wanted to paw at it. This was pretty much the extent of our relationship for the first few weeks of school, and then one day, everything changed. That day was uniform day. It was ordained that if you were in Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, or Brownies, one day a week you could wear your outfits. Claire, I discovered, was a bluebird. And she showed up at school in her bluebird outfit and cap. Wow. 
On uniform day, Claire would wear her hair in a ponytail that she pulled out of a hole that she cut in the back of that cap. And when she walked down the hall, that ponytail would sway back and forth. And that is when I noticed something funny happening in my stomach. I got a very nervous feeling watching that swinging ponytail and that bluebird cap. And a little voice inside of me was saying, man, I don't know what that is, but I like it. Another change in our relationship happened in music class. Fridays were talent days, and people could get up and play a piece, usually on the piano. And one day, surprise of surprises, Claire got up and started playing a version of Picking Up Pawpaws, Put Them In Your Pocket, Picking Up Pawpaws, you know that song. And it was so rousing that the class started clapping and stomping in time, and the music teacher applauded wildly at its conclusion and demanded that Claire play it again. And to this day, this was one of the greatest musical performances I ever had the privilege to see, just for the sheer moving effect that that music had on those people, us kids. I was smitten, not just by Claire, but by music. I dreamt about music. I pretended I was a pianist in Miss Cooper's class and played picking up pawpaws on my desk. I was told not to thump, but hey, I couldn't help it. Not only was I not going to stop, but my repertoire was expanding. I started including wild pianistic works that only existed in my brain, and I played it for the back of Claire's head on my desk. Mrs. Cooper reached a breaking point. She chastised me in front of the class and made me stand with my nose in a chalk circle that she drew at the blackboard for being disruptive, whatever that was. I didn't care. I knew now what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I would play the piano and I would probably marry Claire. And it felt good getting all those big decisions made and out of the way. After Sunday school, we would occasionally go over to my Uncle Jaime's house, and he had the greatest treasure of all. He had a grand piano. The house would be filled with all my relatives eating plates and plates of food and talking, but I would sit down at that huge, beautiful thing and start playing. Now, I didn't know how to play, but I would just start hitting notes and try to tell a story with the sounds. I would hit a big mass of bass notes and stomp on the pedal, and in my head there were these roars of something dangerous coming. And then I would lightly touch the treble keys, and in my head I would see a girl running up the stairs for protection and shouting from a window for help. My <laughs> improvisations usually drove all the grown-ups out of the room grumbling, except for my Aunt Hermine. And she would actually move closer. She would sit on the couch and listen. And when I... <laughs> When I finished, she would applaud and ask me what I was playing, and I would tell her the story, and she would nod very seriously and say, you know, that's really quite good. She would talk to my mom and dad about having a budding pianist in their midst. And after what seemed like months of requests, mom and dad agreed to let me take piano lessons. And they bought me an acrosonic piano, and if you know... <laughs> Anything about pianos, the Acrosonic is as small and as inexpensive a piano as could be had. Mom set up the lessons with Miss Hamby, who was a sweet, 
older, gentle woman who lived with her sister. And once a week, mom would drive me to Miss Hamby's house and sit in the car out front and read. Because my lessons were so short, only 30 minutes long, there wouldn't be enough time for mom to drive all the way back home and then come back again. When you start taking piano lessons, you start to realize the distance between dreams and reality. Not just for the young pianist, but also for the parents. For the child, he or she may suddenly realize that they may be years away from a hands-together version of Silent Night, decades away from picking up pawpaws. And as for Mozart or Beethoven, well, that was just witchcraft. For the parents, you would think that their biggest nightmare would be buying the piano, getting the lesson for their kids, but then having their kids protest and wanting to play outside, not wanting to practice, and have the whole enterprise be a big waste of money. But in reality, the bigger problem is when the child does practice, and he's terrible, and he's loud, and you've been working all day, and you want to just sit and relax and watch TV, and that child slogs away at Big Chief Wahoo for the 20th time in a row. And I'm sure it can make someone homicidal. In fourth grade, I started getting the idea that I may not have been born to play music, or at least maybe the piano wasn't my interest, my, my instrument. Maybe I should allow myself to branch out, and at school, we had a talent show, and I saw Bobby Caldwell pull out a clarinet. Again, I was swept away by the magic of the notes falling on top of one another in such a clever way. Perhaps the clarinet was the instrument for me. Through the school, I signed up to rent a clarinet for six weeks. Mom was presented with the bill, and she asked me why I was suddenly getting a clarinet, and what about all the piano lessons, and I assured her not to worry. I would continue with Miss Hamby, but I just may be a double threat. And I was. I showed up to band practice in the morning with my new clarinet. It's a foregone conclusion that I couldn't play the thing. I'd never held one. And when I opened up the case, I was shocked when I saw that it came in pieces. I had no idea how to put one together. I went over to Bobby Caldwell who graciously showed me how to assemble the thing, and then I started playing. And like my piano playing at Uncle Jaime's, I just blew and moved my fingers, and instead of music, this horrible series of shrieks and squeaks tore through the room, and it must have sounded like a parrot being hit by a lawnmower. The band room was not like Uncle Jaime's. I had no Aunt Hermine to protect me. I had Mr. Graham the band leader, who quieted everyone down and looked at me with absolute mystification. Uh, Stephen, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm playing. Stephen, do you know how to play a clarinet? Not yet. Well, I think maybe you should come back after you've had some lessons. Then you can play with us. I said, yes, sir. I was back at band practice bright and early the next day. Everyone looked at me. I sat down, put my clarinet together, started playing. Mr. Graham heard the shrieks and squeaks again. He came in and stared at me. Stephen, you're back. Yes, sir. Uh, I thought you were going to learn to play first. Yes, sir. But I thought maybe Bobby could teach me something. Mr. Graham nodded and said, Bobby, why don't you take Stephen over to the other side of the room and show him how to hold a clarinet? Bobby smiled and said, sure. 
Bobby Caldwell was a sixth grader, the best player in the band and an expert at the clarinet. And he not only showed me how to hold the clarinet that morning, but he taught me how to play this old man. Yeah, I was playing music. I rushed home from school that day and gave my mother a private concert. And she was very impressed with my rapid progress. One day and one recognizable song, better than the piano. I showed up the next morning, and Mr. Graham was looking at me exasperated. He said stoically, Stephen, the band has to practice today, so you could help us out if you just pretend to play? I nodded. I sat next to Bobby Caldwell. I put my clarinet together and smile. The band started playing a song, and I pretended to blow into the clarinet and move my fingers like Bobby. But after a moment or two, it was too much. The music was overwhelming, and I had to play. So I thought I'd just play softly, and I'll mimic Bobby's finger placements. And at the end of the song, I was so excited because I played it. I played it without being able to read a note of music. I played it, and it sounded good. And I turned to Bobby, and I said, I did it. I did it. I played the song. And Bobby smiled at me and shook his head and said, no, you didn't. Mr. Graham said I had to leave the band room. I was disrupting practice with the concert coming up at the end of the week. It was unfair to the rest of the band. I felt once more I was standing in Miss Cooper's room with my nose in a chalk circle. Mr. Graham told me to learn to play the clarinet, and then I could audition for the band next year. I nodded. Next morning, I showed up at band practice and started putting together my clarinet. The entire band was in a mild state of shock. And Mr. Graham walked in. He saw me. He changed colors from normal to red to white to red again. And I realized in hindsight that that morning I probably got the benefit of Mr. Graham being a good Christian man. He asked me once again to step into the hallway. Stephen, this has to stop. What are you doing here? I said, I I just enjoy the practice. He said, Stephen, you are not in the band. You won't be in the band until you learn to play a musical instrument. Go home. Take lessons. Come back in a year. If you can play then, you can come to our practices. I said, well, what are you going to work on today? And Mr. Graham said, we're working on songs for the concert. We'll be arranging where everyone is sitting and the order of the show. Well, where do you want me to sit? I want you to sit in the audience. Stephen, you will sit in the audience. I'm sure at that point in time, Mr. Graham felt like he had suddenly dropped into some sort of science fiction movie with the alien that wouldn't die. But I didn't go back to band practice for the rest of the week. The day of the concert, our class marched into the auditorium. I brought my clarinet. Mark Wright asked me, what was in the case. I told him it was a clarinet. Mr. Graham wanted me in the audience. We sat down. I started assembling my clarinet. I ran my fingers over the stops, readying myself for whatever Mr. Graham would ask me to do in the concert. The other kids were looking over at me, staring at me, wondering what I was doing. The concert began. Bobby Caldwell played a feature solo with the band backing him up. Everyone applauded. I figured maybe I would be doing this old man. So I started mentally going through the piece. And the band launched into their second number and their third number. Still no indication from Mr. Graham that I was needed. 
Mark Wright looked over at me and shook his head. Roy Scott turned around and asked me what I was doing with the clarinet. I told him I was going to be playing soon. He said, no, you won't. He was right. The concert concluded. I remember Claire looking over at me. Uh, I disassembled my clarinet. I offered to her, Mr. Graham never called on me. I guess he forgot. And that was the end of my clarinet adventure. It made me continue with the piano with a renewed appreciation and passion. Now, I'm going to flash forward a little bit. I studied with Miss Hamby from ages 8 to 14. And at around age 13 or 14, I was playing beginning classical works by Clemente and Mozart, some simple preludes by Chopin. During this same period of time, Claire had become recognized as one of the best pianists in Dallas, playing major concert works in competition. Despite my longing for greater things, I realized I just didn't have the talent to jump the high bar at the piano. I had the ability to sound like I could play, but not much more. I would never approach the breadth of talent of someone like Claire who could transport an audience and transform them into some higher form of spiritual matter. At least that's what I thought. Then magic struck at my final recital for Miss Hamby. Recitals were performed in this mansion-slash-recital hall in our area, and there were always about 20 nervous performers and about 40 or so equally nervous parents at these annual events. Over the years, I had become more and more advanced and was pushed further and further into the program. Jack Nunn was always our closer because he actually was good, but I was moved into the semi-final slot— I was playing a piece called Valse in E-flat by Augustus Durand. It was a very fast piece, very flashy, lots of very familiar parts, which you've heard a thousand times before, even though you never knew it came from this piece. In the first section, there were three ascending arpeggios with big dramatic chords that had set up the light, delightful waltz section that followed. I played these arpeggios with such passion, with such flair, and so perfectly for once, that I was feeling so good, I decided to add a fourth arpeggio, ascending even higher, even more dramatic, and as I played, I ran out of piano keys and fell off the end of the bench onto the floor. The audience gasped. I sprung to my feet and called out to the crowd, no need to be alarmed, it's all part of the show. The audience laughed. I grabbed the music, showed them the page of notes, and continued, see, right here, it says, Pianist Falls, and they all laughed harder. I bowed, and they all applauded. I sat back down at the piano, continued playing, and at that moment, I realized magic had struck. The audience was transformed, and I had done it. I filled them with terror, and then a moment later, I changed it to delight. I had talent. I was just in the wrong field. Right after that, I auditioned for my first school play, a comedy. This old man, he played one. He played knick-knack on my thumb with a knick-knack paddywhack. Give a dog a bone. This old man came rolling home. This old man, he played two. He played knick-knack on my shoe With a knick-knack paddywhack Give a dog a bone This old man came rolling home 
It should be mentioned for the record that I believe in love at first sight. It's not necessarily a good thing or a nice thing, but I know it's a real thing. I was a sophomore in college, and the day all the new students arrived, the green room in the drama department at SMU was filled with all sorts of new faces, and there were lots of pale, angst-ridden young women with stringy hair wearing black leotard tops, and young gay men wearing powder blue sweaters and corduroy pants, all away from home for the very first time. And for all of them, there was a feeling that this was the very first real step on a great adventure. The exploding energy of the green room was too much for me to take, so I climbed the spiral staircases to the dark, empty theaters upstairs. Now, to the left was the large proscenium theater, the Bob Hope, and to the right was the experimental theater, the Margot Jones, and I went to the right. The Margot Jones was considered experimental, not because of the plays that were done there, but because the seats were on rollers and could be arranged in different configurations which they never really did, so it was more of an experiment-waiting-to-happen theater. So I climbed to the back of one of these banks of seats, and I looked at the stage that was lit by what they call a ghost light. And this is a single bulb on a movable stand in the middle of the stage, and I sat there in the darkness wondering what my future would be, and if I would get cast in a play this year, and if the gods would smile on me, if I would gain favor. My reverie was interrupted by a stage door opening and closing. And then I heard footsteps backstage. And then a girl, looking very uncertain, peered around the curtains at the empty space. And she stood there a while, taking in the room. She never saw me in the dark. She crept around the curtain and stood alone on stage. And I imagined she was like me and was wondering what her future would be and if this empty space would be a starting point for something extraordinary. But then, unlike me, she suddenly took a pose as if she were a tightrope walker, arms extended, and she tottered as if she were losing her balance. And then she acted like she suddenly regained her composure and she was on the high wire. And she started carefully, step by step, move her way across the stage. I watched her completely focused on moving from one point of imaginary safety to another. And I fell in love. Huh. I can't explain why or how, but I did. And, and I didn't do like in the movies where the man is in the wings watching the leading lady and suddenly claps, you know, hey, hey, breaks the mood and uses it as an entree for flirtation. No. I remained silent, the perfect audience, completely involved and transformed. I found out her name was Beth. She was from Jackson, Mississippi, which was odd. I never expected to meet anyone from Mississippi, let alone fall in love with someone from there. And I became aware of several practical difficulties with love at first sight. First of all, almost by definition, you, the lover, are already in the deep end of the pool and the other person doesn't even know your name. And that's always tough on a relationship. Another problem is that it's hard to start an introductory conversation without it sounding creepy. Like, Hello, Beth. I found out your name from a teacher. <laughs> you don't know it, but I was sitting in the dark watching you in the empty theater the other day. No, no, it's very, very creepy. So what I ended up doing 
was coming up with a stratagem to drop in on her and meet her at work. You see, everyone in the theater department had to do work after classes doing some form of manual labor related to the theater. He had to build sets or make costumes, hang lights, and Beth was working on sets this semester. And last year, I had worked on sets, and I knew the head of the shop, R.B. Hill. Now, R.B. was a larger-than-life, gregarious man who was never shy about giving his opinion. I remember when I was on his crew the year before, he told me he had worked with a lot of five-thumbed idiots before, but I was the first six-thumb idiot he had ever met. R.B. was surprised to see me come back to the shop. I introduced myself to Beth being one of R.B.'s right-hand men. R.B. grumbled that I didn't even qualify as a foot. I managed to tag along with Beth to the cafeteria for dinner that night, and we ate peanut butter sandwiches And she told me she was an orphan. And I didn't know how to process the information. And later on, I found out she was lying, uh, that her father was really a state senator, and she just enjoyed telling lies as a somewhat dangerous recreational activity, kind of like water skiing. I think she sensed that I liked her, and it flattered her, but she wanted nothing to do with me. Uh, She told me I was not her type. And this crushed me inside, but I kept smiling as if the whole conversation was still some kind of joke. I asked why. I said, what is your type? She said the man she would fall in love with would have to have four characteristics. Number one, he would have to be a genius. Number two, he would have to be either radically liberal or radically conservative. Three, he had to have a beard and mustache. Four, he had to have acne scars. In other words, Edward James Olmos. But we didn't know him. So I still had a shot. I would ask her about her life growing up, and I would get indecipherable pieces of the puzzle. She said she lived in a closet. She said she cut out pictures of people in love from magazines so she would know it when she saw it, that the only man she ever loved was Chico Bambico, and she kept a picture of him in her locket that she wore on her heart. And finally, once I got her to show me the locket, And she opened it up, and it was a picture of a hound dog. She said she loved snow. She hated telephones. Her eyes would flash with absolute joy, and then I would see her fall into this hole of despair. And I could never get a handle on who she was. And I don't think I was being dense. I think she was just hard to get. I kept seeing her. I kept showing up, just like me and the clarinet. I didn't know the notes, but I knew how it would sound if I did, so I just kept moving my hands over the stops like someone who could play, hoping at the end of the process I would have a tune of some kind, even if it was only this old man. I visited Beth at her dorm. We would have dinner. Uh, I would talk, walk her to class. I, I never touched her. No, no, never touched her. Never held her hand. In a way... It all meant too much to me. And if I did something that forced the issue and made her say to me, once and for all, go away, I don't want you, it terrified me that I couldn't see any other options for my life beyond that pronouncement, beyond her. Sometimes love can be a hopeless thing. And love without expression can be a killing thing. And one day I was walking through the green room of our theater department after class, and I knew Beth was in the cafeteria having lunch. But instead of following my usual instincts to run to meet her, 
I turned down a different hallway and I ended up in a different part of the building. Before me, I saw row upon row of wooden cubicles. And then I heard piano music. I was in the music wing and these were practice rooms. And I walked down a narrow side hallway and I saw an open door and inside was a tiny dark room and there was a piano and a chair. I went inside, I turned on the light, closed the door, sat down, and I started to play. I played some of the old recital songs I learned at Miss Hamby's. And then I regressed and played kind of the make-believe songs that used to drive the audiences out of the room at Uncle Jaime's. And out of that mess, I heard a chord and a pattern I liked, and I repeated it, and I added to it, and a couple hours later, I had a song, and I called it Snow Song. It was an inconsiderable thing, but t'was mine own. That evening, I went over to Beth's dorm. I called up to her room and asked if she would come down to the lobby. Now, the lobby at Bose Hall was a very cozy open room with a few odd couches and chairs where boys and girls could talk freely in a highly supervised armed guard environment. Beth came down and was upset that I didn't have lunch with her, and she thought maybe I was mad at her. I told her I was busy, and I led her over to the old grand piano in the middle of the lobby. I told her to sit down. I sat beside her, and I played Snow Song. I told her I wrote it for her. It was her song. And she told me no one had ever written her a song before. And I told her, well, now they have. She looked at me for a long moment and smiled and said, you are a genius. Later that week, we were talking in the dorm lobby and my finger accidentally touched her hand. But I didn't move and she didn't move away. I felt like I was on fire. I moved my finger on top of hers, and she moved her hand closer. I gently moved my fingers on top of hers, and her eyes filled with tears. Neither of us said a thing. We sat in silence, holding hands for at least an hour. This was a love story that occurred in geologic time, at the pace of a glacier. It was imperceptible to the naked eye, but shook us both with metamorphic power. And after that moment, we were an item. And we had many grand adventures together for the next 17 years. And we broke each other's heart many times. As I said before, love at first sight is not necessarily a good thing or a nice thing, but it is a true thing. I remember one of our first nights together after the holding of the hands. Now, we never had any money, so for dates, we had to improvise, and we were walking through the quad at SMU past McFarland Auditorium. That was the big 2,000-seat venue for shows on campus. And we saw a couple hundred people milling around outside the doors, and we thought, oh, well, let's see what all this excitement was about. And there was a concert, and it was intermission, and we thought, Hey, why not? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So Beth and I grabbed a couple programs that were on the ground, and we kind of walked in like we knew what we were doing. And we had no idea what the show was. We headed up to the second balcony where we figured we would be safe from somebody sitting, that we were sitting in someone's seats and getting thrown out by ushers. 
on stage, there was a single grand piano and the curtains opened revealing an orchestra. My heart started beating hard as the lights dimmed and a tall, thin man walked onto the stage. The audience applauded. I looked at my program. It was Van Cliburn. And he was going to play a piece by Rachmaninoff, the third piano concerto. I, I had never heard of it. I had never heard him play it. He sat down. He adjusted the bench. He looked at the keys. He flexed his gigantic hands. He dried them with his handkerchief and nodded to the conductor. The music started. And within seconds, I was transported. So moved by something so profound, I couldn't breathe. And neither could Beth. I held her hand tightly to steady myself. Unsure as to whether the real Miss Hard to Get was sitting beside me or was as untouchable as the beauty in the air around us. Was Miss Hard to Get, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number no. 3, also a favorite of mine. I heard it first, I think, for the first time in my life uh, after watching uh, the movie Shine, starring Jeffrey Rush, actually. Oh, absolutely. That's the song he's working on all during that is that third piano concerto. Right. He's, of course, playing uh, David Helfgott. I actually uh, obtained a copy of uh, Helfgott's actual performance, and it was indeed very good. You know, uh, during during uh, a po- couple podcasts ago, when I was doing the science fiction movie in Vancouver, uh, when I was doing that movie then, David Helfgott was playing the third piano concerto in Vancouver when I was there. Oh, wow. Did you see it? Now I was probably shooting one of those nighttime scenes without the alien. Well, that was that's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, oh, oh, you know, you know what? No, but I do have some. Well, yeah. Go. I wonder if I should save that for a story. There is, there is. I did have. I'll save it for a story. I'm All right. sorry, that's a tease. No problem. All right, well, something about uh, Vancouver or David Helfgott. Yeah, something about Vancouver and classical music, but I may have to save it for later. All right. But I I remember this third piano concerto uh, after Beth and I heard this. Of course, I I had to get this piece of music, but I never remembered to take the program with me to the record store. So I I just kept buying Rachmaninoff records, (laughs) and I ended up with this huge collection of Rachmaninoff records, and the third piano concerto ended up being something like the fourth record I bought. I ended up getting Preludes, second piano concerto, uh, everything, but... It, it still remains, I still have a powerful attachment to this song, and who wouldn't? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto, one of the most monstrously hard pieces ever devised. I think it has more notes per measure than any other concerto in the world. So, oh, a wow. great piece, and uh, you should. You, people listening to this should, should get a recording of it. I think uh, 
Ashkenazi uh, does a really good performance of it. Health God does a good performance. And I actually have a recording of Rachmaninoff himself playing it. So that's also a good, uh, good rendition of his own piece. But this it, is uh, terrifying. You, you are unveiling this classical side of yourself. <laughs> why, why is that terrifying? You should be... No, I, it's, it's, I, I think it's very heartening, you yeah. know, because we started this podcast, you were a young whippersnapper, and now you're reeling off multiple uh, versions of Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. It just shows you how far we've grown in I 30 know. minutes. Exactly. I, I, I agree. Uh, and guess what, ladies? I'm single. No, I, I kid. I mean... <laughs> I kid that, you know, I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I am, in fact, single, though. But in any case, people don't want to hear about that. People want to hear how they can contact you, Stephen. I think, as, as always, the best place to contact me is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling, at gmail.com. And they can also find you on Twitter where, Stephen? Oh man! What it, it's at? About <laughs> my handle is Tobolowski. So slash tw- to, what? What? Twitter.com slash Tobolowski. Thank you. <laughs> one, one of these days, you will be able to recite that it. instantaneously. I'm really enjoying Twitter, though. I'm, I've really met a lot of wonderful people uh, in Finland and Iceland and Scandinavia that I, I never would have met any other way, and we've been sharing all sorts of Scandinavian stories. You know, Stephen, on the episode of Glee that you started, you said the line, the blogs are all a Twitter. And, uh, and you were kind of, I guess you didn't know what Twitter was at that, or you, you knew what Twitter was, but you weren't on Twitter. And now I you have a Twitter. I didn't know account. it was a play on words. So now I, you are truly a method actor, sir. You, yeah. you have gotten a Twitter account. People can communicate with you that way. It's awesome. Absolutely. And people can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. You can also find uh, my episodes of the Slash Filmcast, the other podcast I host, at slashfilmcast.com, the official podcast of slashfilm.com, where The Tobolowsky Files is hosted. And speaking of hosting, you can find every single episode of The Tobolowsky Files at tobolowskyfiles.com. And uh, you can feel free to email me. I don't know if I already said that, but at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. In any case... I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Also, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party at stbpmovie.com. Uh, it's the movie that inspired the podcast. If you like this show, you'll probably like that movie. Throw some money Stephen's way by buying that DVD because it is, in fact, awesome. Yes, Stephen? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll get all three cents of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, in any case, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowsky Files, guys. Uh, tune in next week for another great story. See you guys later. Bye-bye.